Hey, Christina. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm good. What's happening with you? Ellen, excited to talk to our guest today. Excited to see you today and your shining face and fabulous mustache. Right on. Thank you. Oh, how's it? It, looks, it is a little shiny. That's the it's gray hair. It's top tier today. It's the gray it's hair. It's, re- it's highly reflective. <laughs> but thank you. So I realized in listening to some of our recent podcasts, good job, by the way, as you and Eric have done a fabulous job producing these episodes and making us sound so articulate. Thank you. Uh, As I listen to other podcasts, I'm like, you know, we never tell people who we are. We should probably do that. So I want to welcome listeners to the Sausage of Sides podcast. I should probably say the name of the podcast once in a while, affiliated with the uh, Human Biology Association and the American Journal of Human Biology. I am Chris Lynn. I'm a professor of anthropology at the University of Alabama. And today my co-host is... I'm Christina Gildee. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Washington and uh, I study bones. You study bones? I study human bio, tattoos, uh, religion. God, what do I study? Fireside relaxation, stress response, immune response, all that good stuff. All the things. What don't we study? We're biological anthropologists. Our interests are broad and wide and complex. That's why I went into anthropology, actually. One of my professors early on was like, anthropologists study everything. So you just have to be able to articulate (laughs) the theory associated with it. uh, And you're good. And I'm like, all right, good, because I can't decide. (laughs) So who are we talking to today? I know uh, this is someone you met at the meetings back in Reno recently. You brought uh, this guest to us. Yeah, Georgia Scott. Uh, Georgia Scott is a a master's student. She's uh, studying bioarchaeology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Her research is largely centered on ethical considerations. Uh, Very, very important work. So ethical considerations in archaeology, um, specifically around the use and treatment of human remains. So lots of conversations happening about that uh, specifically right now. Um, Should be happening all the time. Uh, Georgia received her Bachelor of Science in Anthropology from Montana State University and uh, has a background in vertebrate paleontology, zooarchaeology, museum studies. Very groovy person, very passionate about collaborative methodologies and uh, encouraging better engagement with descendant communities of the uh, of the remains that we're working with. So that's, excited to have some conversations with her. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. We, um, for listeners out there who may not be familiar with the, the controversies that we're uh, referring to, Anthropology and and affiliated disciplines have this history of collecting uh, mortuary remains, human remains uh, that have come from purposely digging them up, from um, stealing them. Yeah, stealing them, cultural resource management, recovering them, people buying property, digging up their property, finding bones, bringing them in. And of course, Mm -hmm. these all belonged to, they still belong to someone, a deceased person, but they, they, they had agency in their life all of which is disregarded when their bones are disinterred and dragged off somewhere. Um, my university has uh, a long history in this area. Uh, I was just reading one of my mm-hmm. students' um, midterms where they were referring to some of the efforts we have done at decolonization. I was like, we don't 
need to brag on this yet. Everyone mm. should be doing this and not mm -hmm. tooting our horn because mm -hmm. in fact, most of the country, indigenous peoples know the University of Alabama for being one of the worst violators mm, of this mm -hmm. and, and housing remains until relatively recently. And this is a big issue. I don't know about for you yet, but for me as a, a graduate director and an advisor, I get so many students who still grow up watching Bones mm, and want to go mm -hmm. into forensics. And that was great. Great show. Drove lots of people to anthropology. And then they had to find something else to do with that interest because it's nothing <laughs> like that, of course. Most of them become bioarchaeologists or medical anthropologists. Um, and those bioarchaeologists would work with the skeletal remains that we had in our collection. And that's how so many of them were trained. And when I took over as grad director, and that coincided with the pandemic, I, I had students who had just joined my program to work with those bones, which were no longer available, mm -hmm. and with the person who had just retired, who was no longer here to work with them, and during COVID. So I had a lot, I got a lot of experience finding out how much I truly don't know about this topic, yeah. and how yeah. difficult it is to train students in um, bioarchaeology. Yeah, yeah, and the I mean the University of Washington has a, a complicated history um, as well with um, the land that they're on, the communities that they have worked with. But a lot of really good work has has happened um, to be much more careful about how we're handling remains, how we're caretaking and curating the remains that are that are in our possession that we are responsible for when we are not able to repatriate them and. Um, Maybe we'll have an opportunity. Maybe Georgia will talk a little bit about when that happens and, and how it happens and why it happens uh, if we have a chance. But it's 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 complicated. Not everybody even agrees that it should be done. Um, so I think it's important to have conversations. And in terms of the decolonization conversations that happen with uh, certain universities, I think it's always important to have those conversations if we're talking about how we can do it better. If it is just tooting your own horn, then I agree. Maybe it doesn't bring any bring us forward <laughs> as yeah, an academic no. <laughs> community. But when we're having those conversations about how can we do it better, how can we take responsibility for the things we've done in the past that that should never have occurred, and and how do we move forward together? I mean, I I I don't want to I don't want to bash the people who do good work at, at my university and the students who want to talk about it. That was that was an example that you'd be, you're right. And and if we do, we need to point out like, this is where we were. This is what we're trying mm -hmm. to do now. Yeah. Right? So, um, I mean, but both happen. Sometimes it is, sometimes it is just tooting their own. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> it depends it does, on who's doing it now. It, it definitely does happen. And before we bring Georgia on, you saw her in fact, uh, addressing some of that controversy. Are we going to be able to ask her a little bit about that today? Some of the negative interactions she had? No, no, no. We'll, we'll see what she wants to, what she wants to chat about. Let's bring her on. Hi, Hello. Georgia. Hey. Welcome to the Sausage of Science, Georgia. I'm Chris. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Sorry if I'm yelling. I don't know why I'm talking so loud. Okay. <laughs> good it's to okay. see you again, Georgia. Yeah, it's good to see you too. So, well, we always start off the show with everyone the same way. The Sausage of Science is sort of a play on words of like what, how the sausage is made, how is the science made. And we always start off by finding out how the scientist is made. So, Tell us about yourself. What motivated you to go into anthropology, where you are now? We, we did pull your bio and we read a little bit about it, but uh, throw a little personal flavor in there. And then what led you to your current research? I always, I never know what to say with um, the sort of thing, like talk about yourself. Um, so 
I guess like this started when I was young, as like a young kid. So my parents instilled this love of wildlife and nature and like really fostered an environment of discussion and discourse, like specifically around science, um, but also philosophy without even like realizing it. Um, But my dad was a fisheries biologist with NOAA when I was young uh, and he worked from home when I was in kindergarten. And that's where I first like remember being like super interested in it because he would have all these like microscopes laid out. And he would show um, me and my sister how to like use them and look at them. And I remember it blew like my child mind that you could have this whole thing, like how much information is in this, these tiny little fish bones and everything. So I, yeah, I really had like a love of science and evolutionary biology, like from a young age, but I did lose that um, and didn't really discover that until I was 20. Um And so I actually did college much later than most people. I think I was around 22 when I went to college. I was a double major in biology, geology. Then I ended up, I wanted to do paleontology. So I ended up in Montana for my undergrad. Um, And I had two years left and I took this archaeology class as like an elective. And it was on myths and mysteries of the past. (laughs) And something just kind of like clicked with me. And my professor, Nancy, was great at calling out these problematic issues with archaeology. And she was the first person to show me that archaeology is both this wonderful but dangerous thing. And you can love something and see the good in it while also recognizing its flaws and the immense harm it can cause. So that's kind of where this all started. Um, Working with bones is not that new to me or odd, I guess. Um, I think there are a lot of people like myself or bioarchaeologists who have like a similar story of when I was young, like I was really interested in bones and death like freaked me out, obviously. You mean the show bones? <laughs> no. Because <laughs> okay. we just did have a conversation about that. So I want to clarify. <laughs> No, I love that. I mean, that's scary for other reasons, but no, I was, I've always been like interested in bones. And so um, when I was little, I think I was around like six years old. um, I was collecting um, chicken bones from like after eating like Popeye's or like dinner or whatever. And my mom found them. I hid them in like an old yogurt container, like behind the um, couch in the living room. And she was poor mother. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She, my parents were always really, really supportive and she's like well let's put them in the refrigerator so they don't make things smell and she's like you can keep your bones let's just put them somewhere that is a little better yeah for me it wasn't a huge thing I when I was seven I actually toured I had like a personal tour of this funeral home um and then for my 10th birthday like I spent it in a cemetery and then when I was in high school I like volunteered at a local funeral home so it's all it all came together. Despite being, you said, terrified of death, that the, the death really spooked you. And yet you just leaned into the exposure therapy of, of this. That is, that is so fascinating to me. What prompted that? What, what pushed you in that direction? And then how did that translate to, okay, let's do this yeah. for an even bigger thing? Yeah. So I don't really know. I don't, <laughs> I'm still horrified by the thought of dying. Like, when so I was doing vertebrate paleontology specifically. Um, I wasn't working with like anthropology at this point or anything. Um, my undergrad was all Zoark. That's all I did. I worked on this uh, bison kill site in the middle of Montana. Um, and I didn't really think a whole lot about it. I felt okay. I can do zoarchaeology because I'm working with 
animal remains. So that's good, right? Like that's better. I'm not involved, but still I didn't realize like the complexity of everything. It was kind of a big jump from undergrad to grad school because I went from doing zoarch to then bioarchaeology where I'm working with human remains and discussing human remains, which holds so many other social, cultural, like societal issues around it. I didn't come into grad school with the intention of doing this. I didn't go in with the intention of addressing publishing standards or even ethics, anything like that. I just knew I wanted to contribute to the field of archaeology in a way that addressed anthropology's racist history, while at the same time uplifting voices of marginalized communities. And I didn't know how to do that. I still don't really know how to do that. I'm just I'm still kind of learning with that. This all kind of really started because when I got to grad school, I was really unsettled to learn that some scholars place more of an emphasis on ethics than others. Human remains were seen as tools and there were professionals acting as if they had this supreme right to use them however they saw fit, uh, which is upsetting. And I actually had a whole crisis my first semester, um, feeling like I was crazy for caring about something that other people seemed unconcerned by. And it wasn't until I met my current advisor, uh, Dr. Palud, that I started to feel like I was on solid ground again. Uh, she takes the ethical treatment of human remains very seriously. And she's actually the one who recommended I look at publishing standards. And so that's opened up like a whole new avenue. I've learned so much about the publishing aspect and how the these publishing companies and entities even work. Yeah, she was the one who really pointed me into that direction. Did you select this advisor specifically or and, and that brought you to University of Nevada, Reno, or did you I think we talked a little bit about that being a, a supportive environment for you when you yes. were interested in this topic. Yes. So I had an interesting, I was accepted under a different advisor um, and we had different opinions on ethics and the morality of doing certain work. So I didn't meet Dr. Palud until I my second semester. And so that was really hard because I was like, well, I just messed everything up. I don't know what I'm going to do. But Dr. Plude was amazing. And she, I like taught, spoke to her about it. I spoke to another um, professor in my department, Dr. Cowie, and they both made me feel like I wasn't crazy or anything. And I, Dr. Plude was kind enough to like bring me on. And so my research actually completely changed. And that's where like this started was because I was kind of butting heads with my old advisor over a lot of these issues. <laughs> Navigating graduate school and finding an advisor that is that is really supportive of of the things that you're interested in while you're also learning what it is you're interested in and how you want your research to impact the world and how your research is impacting you is really, really tricky. And I actually want to ask you a question about how you're navigating that um, in a little bit. But I want to talk about your research. You, when we met, you were presenting a, a poster at the AABA HBA conference in Reno, the 2023, just this past year. God, it is still 2023 this year. Yeah. <laughs> how, does, how does time fly? Yeah. And you're, this was a poster you were doing with your advisor. This project was looking into publishing standards, right? And ethical concerns specifically in bioarchaeological research. What inspired this project? When, so we started talking about ethics and I was really curious, how are people getting away with this? Like, how are people able to do 
certain things that it, it was basically I was seeing people who were doing these things that were very unethical and no one was being held accountable. So let's talk about um, who holds people accountable. That's a big one. So there really isn't any oversight for archaeologists. Um, there's no one to hold us accountable, essentially. From my research and discussions with other anthropologists, it also seems that AABA doesn't want that responsibility, given the amount of pushback they'd receive. Um, and there's this entitlement that some archaeologists and anthropologists seem to feel. And unfortunately, they're very vocal and often in positions of power. So for change to occur, it's going to have to come from publishers and grant agencies. And that's where I first started what we publish matters as much as what we say. Um, and so by gauging where we're at today, it can help us identify where improvements needed and the steps to take so that we can do better tomorrow. But we have to start somewhere. I hear people talk about decolonization, collaboration with descendant communities, da da da, all that stuff. But do we see it? Like, do we actually see that in our research? And is our research aligning with what with that? So I want to I want to applaud you, one because I know that you had some uncomfortable interactions with some of those senior people who were mm -hmm. at your poster, and I I want to say don't say anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. I applaud you because you're doing this work in a vulnerable position. You're a graduate student, and probably almost if not everyone in those on your poster and in those papers are senior to you, and are on grant committees job search committees, all of that stuff. So all grad students are vulnerable. Junior professors are vulnerable. And there's a reason everyone avoids this topic, much like sexual harassment in the field, much like name the, the issue. Um, and I know some of these, as we were discussing from my own institution as well, and my own place as a privileged white dude at the top of the food chain in academia, right? Like I see all of this, and I know young people are trying to make their mark. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it's you guys who are willing to tilt at windmills in some cases is what it looks like to senior people or the public or try to change the discipline. And it's both important and it needs to happen from you because the people at the top are have drank the Kool-Aid or, or so entrenched, it's difficult to go back and do it but also because we we have bought into it yeah. and it is difficult to then go and retroactively fix our own, even our own work. Um, so people just avoid it and let some, the next crew do it. But, and I, and I want to say this is wrong before I say what, what senior people like me do, they see what young people do as not as legitimate because it's, uh, it's a cute thing that the young grad students are doing, but that yes. is, that is how the discipline changes. You guys will all drink your own Kool-Aids. Hopefully it's a better brand, less processed bullshit. I'm just trying to extend the metaphor, sorry. Um, <laughs> and the discipline will be different as you guys age into it. Yeah. Right? You're creating the discipline you want to be in. And so I, I applaud that. I think that's what we all should be doing. And we should all be reflexive. Um, you focused in your poster on 57 articles published between 2018 and 2022, and they evolved human remains. So there's a lot of meta stuff floating here in this conversation. We want to give you the opportunity to zoom in and tell us about your methods and your, your rationale. Why did you 
choose those articles? What was the process and, and um, how did you do your analysis? This is where there's so many different layers to this because I ended up looking at five different variables to assess like where we're at right now um, when we publish. But with those five, they're underlying things with them. So I'll, let me just start. The first one that I looked at was an ethics statement of some kind. And this one could be really simple. Like this could be something like saying this research was undertaken following ethical protocol. You could didn't even need to describe what that ethical protocol was. We were just setting the bar really low to see if ethics were mentioned at all. Um, the second was whether the dissident community was involved or consulted. So we need to see more involvement with dissident communities and not just have them involved, but we need to do our research in collaboration with them. Um, that's ultimately where we want the field to go. Uh, but for the study, we were really just seeing what the standard is. Do they even name the dissident community? Do they say that they were involved? Do they say they were consulted? What's the deal with that? Um, and then the third one was whether permission to study the remains was mentioned. Um, and if so, who gave that permission? So for this study, permission could refer to a university, a government, dissident community, a person or persons, anything. Um, but distinguishing what an entity provided permission is important, especially when we talk about decolonizing the field. For example, a government giving permission is distinctly different than the dissident community giving permission. And this creates a huge conflict of interest and power dynamic because since people from marginalized and oppressed communities already hold far less power than governments do. So they're steamrolled in these issues. They don't have that much of a voice and who have been pushed to the corners of academia. Like you have to really search for some of these things to if you wanted to hear what an indigenous scholar talks about or something like that, then you have to really look for it because it's often the same people that they've been hitting every single time. You see Adelaide all the time. And I love Adelaide. That's great. But there are other younger people coming up too that are not getting recognized in the literature. That's a little bit of a tangent, but <laughs> so the fourth variable I looked at was whether destructive analysis was involved. So like DNA, isotopic data, anything like that. Um, and then lastly, it was noted whether the remains were recovered after NAGPRA's passing. Uh, so the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, it's only applicable to North America. And even then, it's it's only on federal land, only with federal entities, all that. Um, but I used that as a landmark date, which that was passed in 1990, um, as it was the culmination of numerous indigenous movements that happened across the world that had taken place over the last three decades. So this wasn't new, um, but some people took issue to me using NAGPRA as a date, given some of the articles analyzed were done internationally. Um, but I find that argument disingenuous because the World Archaeological Congress established the Vermilion Accord on Human Rights one year prior to that in 1989. So archaeologists and anthropologists worldwide would have been aware of the issues by the time NAGPRA was implemented. And so by giving that one year, then that kind of gives people the opportunity to shift their work. So let me clarify or ask a clarifying question. So people push back because there wasn't the same rule as though it weren't an ethical concern. Yes. They were like, there's not a rule. So fuck it. We're going to do that. It must not That's be an exactly. ethical concern for them. That's exactly it. That's 100% what it is. This is about ethics. I'm not talking about legislation. I'm not talking about that we should go arrest all these people who did this. It's not what this is saying. This is just saying that NAGPRO was on everybody's mind at this point. So we all knew it was a thing. And there was a lot of pushback with this 
it, that was really shocking to me. I will say that um, my advisor, she was like, oh, this will be great. I think this will go well. I think that publishers of some of these journals would really like to see this data and take it seriously. And that wasn't the case. Uh, that was not the case at all. And some of the people that she was expecting to support that work were actually some of the people who were the most upset by it. I was actually told by one of the people that my work was a personal attack. It's a, it's a fraught topic. I, I think mm -hmm. that ethical use, and not everybody agrees that, that there is such a thing of human remains in biological research and, and specifically anthropological research is difficult. And I, while there is such a complicated, deeply problematic history in the field, um, we've all inherited that. And yes. to some degree are all operating within a system that allows us and even encourages us in some cases to benefit directly from those bad actors and, and that research. So I, I can understand how people can get very excitable <laughs> about yeah. the topic. What I really appreciated about your poster was that there are many caveats uh, in, in your work that I don't, apologies, but I feel like you haven't really had an opportunity to, to focus on. So it, particularly about the NAGPRA um, parameter in your methods, I didn't get the impression that you were indicating that the journal or the, pub, or the authors were in violation of NAGPRA, but that this is a thing that we have all understood at this point. If you are working in this field, the ethical considerations of working with human remains isn't something you get to shrug and say, that nah, didn't know. Uh, you know, didn't know better. And I felt very strongly that what you were talking about was here you have a very important system, the publishing system, and you wanted to investigate how they are holding people responsible for adhering to certain ethical frameworks in their research for the use of human remains. And I, I do think you talk about how some authors are doing a little bit better than others. And I think you really were attempting to encourage conversation about how these parameters could be improved and how we could do better moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about what you found when you did this uh, review and, and how maybe how people can do a little bit better moving forward? So nearly every publication on this lacked an ethics statement. I'll start with that. Um, and that one was a really low bar, but I also kind of didn't expect an ethics statement, to be honest. Um, most journals have their guidelines online and you don't get to see them. I think people assume, oh, well, it was accepted. So I obviously followed these ethical guidelines when that's not really the case. There were guidelines that this particular journal used. They weren't enforcing those guidelines. There were articles not meeting those requirements, but they were still allowed to be published. So that was concerning. Half of all the articles involve some form of destructive analysis. Um, that's really interesting when you realize that only 72% of those articles noted some sort of permission and only 25% involved or consulted with the descendant community. So if you're doing destructive analysis, you should most definitely be consulting with the descendant community. And I know, so I talk about descendant community a lot in this, and I know that that's so hard to determine sometimes um, and different cultures have different viewpoints. And uh, this work isn't trying to define what a descendant community is or tell people how to, to be a descendant, anything like that. It's 72% um, noted permission, but I will say that permission 
is a little mucky because very few people, I think maybe one or two articles actually use the word permission. Um, oftentimes what you saw was thanks to da, 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 that's it. What are you thanking them for? And sometimes it was an individual and sometimes it was an institution, but you're still not clear. At the end. You, you mean that they're thanking a person or a university or a group or a repository of, of remains in, in some way or. Yes. So all of these that I say, like permission was noted, then it could be something as loose as thank you to the government, like the Guatemalan government, for example, you see that, um, but it is really interesting because you have certain governments where the state technically owns any human remains and you have an issue when that's a settler colonial state. And that's why I wanted to include where the permission came from. So not just did they get permission or did they say thank you to somebody? Um, where's that coming from? Because we know that those are going to be two very different things. Who gave the permission is important. So so quick question, just, just because I, I don't want to lose the thread of your findings, but do you have any sense of if there are requirements or guidelines, why they're not being followed? Is it laziness? Is it they don't care? Do you have any sense? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to, I don't like to assume the worst in people, but from what my own experiences and what I've seen, it just seems like it's this very Western scientific viewpoint that science trumps everything and these the scientists are correct and nobody else has any say in it. But then also like the actual scientific community is like suppressing the voices of other scientists. So so I should clarify, I think it it's different for the UK, for example. They are discussing these things with the local history chapters and the people who live there. And so they're doing a better job of it than we are. So there's something going on there. There's a there there. We don't know what it is. And my follow up, I'm assuming I didn't see your poster. So I, I assume either on the poster or via your references, you can find out which journals are implicated. Um, we're not going to name them here. Right. But if any journal editors are getting their panties in a bunch right now, go go check the poster out. Right. You, yeah, you need, or, like, or scrutinize yourself to see exactly. if you, you think you fit the bill. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's, and that's like simple thing that you can do. Go on, if you're a publisher, go on to your guidelines, your publishing guidelines and see, are you holding those up? There were articles that the publishing requirements stated they had to do something. And then these articles were still going through that didn't include these. So you need to enforce those guidelines. These need to, they shouldn't even be guidelines. Like these should be requirements. And I think that it's really important for everybody to remember that as researchers and colleagues, students, whatever, we have to be mindful that ethical praxis begins with our research design and it needs to be explicitly stated in our publications. Great point that you're bringing up. There's a lack of transparency that is deeply concerning and and very much harkens back to uh, the the same pickles that we found ourselves in as biological anthropologists and gave us this very complicated, very problematic reputation in our research with human remains. And and one of the things that you and I talked about at the uh, at the conference was this importance of if you didn't adhere to a to a particular standard, um, because 
as you, you mentioned, there are, is nuance. Maybe you are having difficulty contacting the descendant population. Maybe we're, you're unable to identify a descendant population for, for one reason or another, as just as an example. Maybe the descendant community doesn't want their remains back. That, that happens. Is there then a push to include additional verbiage in your publication that acknowledges that, that talks about that? Is there a higher responsibility that we need to hold these researchers to in their publication, extra work they need to do by virtue of the fact that they are working with human remains? And if so, what does that look like? Who's going to hold them to that? Who's going to demand that kind of accountability in their research? And, and I appreciate it about the work that you're doing and the work that it, it sounds like you're going to continue to do starting those conversations about how do we, one, investigate ourselves and two, hold ourselves accountable in our own work and hold each other accountable as, as a scientific community who has this incredible privilege of even having access to uh, these human remains. You, you've talked about how you kind of want some of these changes to occur, what you think that they, they should look like, how journals can contribute to that conversation, and that uh, clearly put you in the line of fire <laughs> more, more than once. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this is this is a human remains and their ethical treatment is an incredibly sensitive topic, uh, culturally, socially, um, and it is professionally contentious. Chris was mentioning earlier how dangerous it can be from a career standpoint to ask certain kinds of questions of certain people in power. How how do you navigate that? How do you try to keep your head on straight in that blowback? And do you have any advice for people? who want to do this type of research, especially younger, younger scientists. Well, let me start with um, the point is to call people in. We're not calling people out. We don't want people to like get defensive. We don't want people to feel like they're being personally attacked because it's not a personal attack. This is about making the field better and about doing things more ethically. I, I will say like publishing is really important to this. Publishing is a core facet of academia. Oftentimes one's measure of success in academia is determined by how much we publish. Um, the papers that get published and the publishing requirements for those journals tell us and the entire academic community what our discipline prioritizes and the philosophy that guides our studies. So we talk a lot about moving toward a more ethical field, so that must be reflected in the academic journals. They need to implement and enforce an ethical framework, not simply an ethic statement that acts as a suggestion or recommendation that people can ignore. There currently isn't a system put in place to hold people accountable when they engage in unethical research. And so the journals decide what research does and doesn't get published, so their guidelines hold an immense amount of power. And if we're going to see any change, I think it's going to have to come from that. I was talking to Dr. Palude the other day, and she was talking about grant agencies. They can catch unethical research right away. That needs to be a part of it. I haven't figured out a way of how to navigate this. I'm still figuring this out. It is a really contentious issue among professionals, and people can become very reactive and defensive. Um, but as much as you try to keep things civil and professional, you're still going to have some people who are just unwilling to listen. Unfortunately, that seemed to be the case where when these people had come up at AABA, I wasn't even able to answer any of their questions. They didn't give me the opportunity to answer anything. Um, it was rapid fire, one question after the other, and then a lot of 
degradation of like, oh, well, you're just a student or do you even know what you're talking about? You are going to have people like that. You mentioned that. And I just want to sort of throw out there for if we happen to have anyone listening who thinks it's uh, useful for grad student educations to basically uh, grill them, right? Not just ask questions, grill them like it's a doctoral defense at a poster. It is not a service to anyone. No one gets anything out of it aside from thinking that you are an asshole. I know some of these people. I won't name them, but I'm calling them out. It's not helpful. It's, I think it's so disappointing as well that it just, at, when you're a junior researcher and you're at one of these conferences, you have put a great deal of time and energy into this work. And you're just hoping that somebody will talk to you about this thing that you clearly care so much about. And you're, you're, you're trying to open a conversation. You want to have a conversation, yeah. especially when you have an opportunity to speak to senior researchers whose focus is this work. Yes. You want to have a conversation with them. You want to learn from them in the same way that you want to talk about the problems that you see and how you think you can work together to address that. And if that conversation isn't happening with mutual respect, it's very, very painful. And as an observer of situations like that and, and having been in situations like that, it really makes me wonder why people who engage in that behavior are members of a scientific community. Yes. We are a community. So much of our work only matters when it is peer reviewed. Yes. So the the ability to communicate with our peers, to communicate with people who are more advanced in our in our community in terms of experience, in terms of uh, access to resources for doing uh, their work. If we're not able to collaborate across subfields, across generations, across institutions, why are we here? So yeah. I would really encourage everybody to be trying to have as respectful and open conversations as possible to not retreat into the smallest parts of ourselves and become threatened when yeah. someone says something that's uncomfortable to hear. That's learning. Yes. And, and I was really disappointed to see that you weren't given that opportunity to be a learner and to feel respected in, in that process by senior researchers. That was really disappointing to watch. It's much more articulate. I just take the name calling assholes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to ask, I wanted to reinforce the courage that it takes to come on here after what you feared most, right? And now you're putting <laughs> yourself up for it more. But I also want to put, I want to say as you're, you're a colleague, you're not junior to me just because you're a grad student. And so uh, this may not mean a whole lot. I'm going to say it this way anyway. If being a senior white male gives me any credibility in the in this conversation, uh, you did the right thing by focusing on the journals and the grants and not on the professional organizations, which is what I've seen other people focusing on. Because as someone who uh, I'm on the EC for HBA, we talk about this. We have an ethics committee. And we recognize that we're toothless and have zero leverage over anyone who violates anything. And I've seen this over and over again. The leverage is where the currency, the unit of value in our discipline, and you said it, so I just want to stick a pin in what you said, our peer-reviewed publications and our editors and our editorial boards are gatekeepers. And all of the software that we use have mechanisms in them 
to require you fill out boxes that say certain things or have a box. We all have had to do the authorship taxonomies now. We all have to indicate certain uh, statements about conflicts of interest. It's no different than that. All they have to do is require it and say you're not going to get published until this is done. Super low bar. I want to say I do not understand what the argument is about, but I, I really do because the tenure system is so, there's so much pressure on producing peer-reviewed publications that we push out uh, LPUs, least publishable units, all the time. And they if they are leaving something important like that off, they're probably hoping it won't be noticed because they don't have it and don't want to have to go get it because it'll slow them down. I appreciate that because it is, um, there's a power dynamic. Like I, I'm a grad student. I haven't been... I'm not part of this community for very long. And with this project, I really wanted to start a discussion. I wanted to have a discussion in good faith. I do think that most people maybe do want to make the field better and do care about these things. And I think too, that people have a hard time pivoting, um, where when you have these scholars who've been in the field for a long time and it can become easy to get complacent, we can all recognize people change and we grow and we learn new things. And so just because your research that you used to do might not align with what you believe now, talk about that. That's my, that's what Dr. Pluth made it clear. She's like, I wasn't always interested in this. I wasn't always doing this. I wasn't always cognizant of this, but she is committed to learning more about it and having a more ethical practice. So I do think that a lot of it is self-reflection. And I think that it's really easy, especially if you're in a tenured position, it's easy to get used to people saying yes to you and deferring to you. And when somebody has a legitimate question about something, then oftentimes that can be viewed as an attack when it's not meant to be at all. Yeah. And I, and I also think there's an element of particularly with senior researchers and, um, and, and others who have spent so long trying to do a lot of what you're doing, trying to rail against, hey, there are some very serious uh, ethical concerns with the handling of some of these remains and trying to do the good work to change the field to the best of their ability. I think that there's an, likely a point at which you get burnt out Yes. Kind of railing, you know, against <laughs> the, the raging against the machine, as it were. Yeah. And so I can understand how it could be threatening to have a, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, younger, full of energy uh, graduate student pointing out all of the ways in which you or your ilk may have not worked as hard as we might think you could. I could see that stinging. For a yeah. lot of people. Um, and so I think that we all need to be careful and, and cautious and respectful in how we're communicating our concerns all the way across the board. But I also think it's important that as the new generation of researchers, we are refusing to compromise on standards that we have, but being willing to have conversations about when those standards aren't met, why, and how can we how can we push it forward and how can we be better? But the only way that the field changes is we can make these changes where they can be made. But I'm also sympathetic. Yeah, it's got to suck to be like, I've been fighting this for 30 years and it's like banging your head against a wall and you get frustrated and you're pushed to be publishing anyway. Your career is dependent on it. 
And yeah. I, I think it's important then to be having conversations about where can we support each other as we're getting frustrated in that work? Where can we ally ourselves so that it isn't one graduate student <laughs> standing in front of a poster <laughs> while people fire crossbows into <laughs> them and their research? So what what's how are you moving forward? What's next in your research? What's you were talking about your thesis and how you're going to expand the the work from yeah. your poster? What's that going to look like? That's really just a pilot study of a much larger project that's meant to assess the ways in which published research addresses ethical considerations. It was, this was just one journal. My thesis is going to span six years between 2017 and 2023, um, and it'll encompass three different journals. These journals cover bioarchaeology, paleopathology, and osteology. It also includes more variables like where remains are housed, what country the researchers are from, things like that, because parachute science is still a huge issue. Um, and I'm also looking at, are they, do they have funding for these, um, research projects? And if so, what entities are providing that? Cause we do have some of these papers that were funded by the national science foundation or national geographic and funding agencies could also provide an ethical framework that people have to abide by, but we don't see that. And so I definitely wanted to address that as well. Um, might as well do it again. Like, I love it. Scientific accountability, meet the accountant. <laughs> we imagine you have many skills. So to close, we are trying to get the HBA talent show back up and cajole, not bully, cajole our members into showing off their talents. So if we could we could get you to join us at HBA this coming year and, and your work would definitely be welcome. Um, what talent can we look forward to uh, you sharing with us? Yeah, that's a hard one. My partner and I were talking about this. I don't I don't feel like I have like traditional talents. Um, I can weirdly quote a lot of uh, cartoons, but I... Non-traditional <laughs> talents are most especially welcome. Yeah, I the only real talent I can think of is I'm weirdly flexible. I can put both of my legs behind my head, so... Uh, I think that'll <laughs> go with Wenda Trevathan parallel parking. You guys will be over there bending or, and, <laughs> and parking cars. Yeah, perfect. There you go. Awesome. Um, how can people find out more about your work if uh, if you want to be found? You may be wanting to hide for a while, but... That's it. <laughs> I'm really bad about social media, but the best way that people can get a hold of me would be my email. And I welcome anybody to email me about anything, whether it's you, you've had the same issue that I went through, or you want to do some research, whatever it is, I try to be as honest and real as possible. And so if there are any questions, anything people want, then yeah, just we will we're... throw your email in the in the show notes for sure. And uh, if you know, maybe if you're listening to this, and you are a senior researcher, and you want to have a uh, honest and respectful conversation, yeah. Uh, about this work, if you have some insight. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd love to hear anything because uh, this no, we're not going to solve this issue unless we all talk about it. And the rest of us are on, so, on the socials. Um, we may or may not um, interact a whole lot, but we welcome <laughs> all ats and trolls. Um, I'm at Chris underscore LY. I'm at Christina Gildee. We have been the Sausage of Science. You can find all of our episodes on SoundCloud and on the Human Biology website and we thank you for listening thanks we'll, for joining us georgia we'll, we'll talk at you next week thanks georgia yeah Bye. thank you so much